talk about, I guess, what God's spoken to me. This is, I'm reading out of the New King James. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man in whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For, the day, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into, drought, into the drought of summer. But I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave me the iniquity of my sin. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they shall not come near him. You are my hiding place, and you shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Thank you, God, for your word. Speak to us, Lord, through the words of King David years and years ago that are still relevant and alive today through your spirit. Use this time to edify the body and to draw us to you to see the beauty of Christ and, and your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, y'all can grab a seat. So I think one of the reasons I love this psalm so much is because I don't know when, I mean, I've read through the psalms plenty of times, but I don't remember when I first read this psalm and I saw my story in it. And not really my story so much as the story that God has written for me and for everyone who comes to him with a humble heart. This psalm to me holds the gospel in it, and that's why I love it so much. It's the story of Christ redeeming us out of our sin. So, like I said, if I can convey that to you somehow, um, I think I will have done my job this morning. So it starts with, it's, it's a psalm that's kind of bookended by a benediction. Um, it starts with, blessed is the one. There's three, four things. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And if you kind of look, I mean, obviously we look now from the perspective of having seen Jesus in the Gospels and seen in the cross, which David didn't have a clear picture of, but I believe this was inspired by the Holy Spirit, and so he was writing about Jesus, and we see who is, who is the one person who needs no forgiveness of sins, or who's, who has no sin to be covered? Who's the one who, who, in whose spirit there's no deceit? 
I thought of the, I thought of the, um, obviously of Jesus. If you think of Jesus, he had no transgression or sin, never sinned once. He always did the will of his father, he said. And there's also scripture that says that he had no deceit in his mouth. I thought of the, of, of the verse in, in John that says, he is the light and in him is no darkness at all. The reason he had no deceit, he had nothing to cover. He had nothing to hide. Why would somebody be deceitful? It's because you, don't, you can't reckon with the truth. You're scared of the truth, right? You're not going to tell a lie to somebody um, that makes you look worse than you actually are. It's always to try to paint yourself in a better, better picture. Jesus had none of that. There was no reason to because he was perfect. He is the light and in him is no darkness at all. He had nothing to hide. He was perfect. And yet Isaiah 53, the one line in here, blessed is the one, blessed is the one to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. If we go to Isaiah 53, it tells us that the Lord has laid on him, the perfect one, the iniquity of us all. So we can see that Jesus was that, the one who had no, had, had no reason to be counted as sin, that he became sin for us. So we see that this psalm is written in the shadow of the cross. If we look at it through that perspective. In fact, um, I thought of the, the verses in Peter, and he's echoing the prophet Isaiah, that, that Isaiah 53. He gives us a beautiful summation of the atoning work of Jesus on the cross by saying, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And we'll revisit this verse again towards the end. So we see the person who fits that category, the one who's the perfect man, that's Jesus. Listen to David. And this is, some um, commentators have said that this is one of the Psalms, we always think of Psalm 51, right, as the one that that, um, David wrote after his sin with Bathsheba. But some commentators also um, put this as another one of the Psalms right over that time. He says, when I kept silent... This is him talking about his sin. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. So verse 3 paints a picture of someone who's hiding from God. Which reminds us of really shame which came into the world because of sin, right? What do we see in the Garden of Eden? Adam sins and Eve, and the first thing they do, they cover themselves and they're running and they're hiding from God. Aren't we the same way? Where we know what we should be doing and we don't do it, we know that our heart isn't right with God, we sin against God, and our first reaction in the flesh is to hide, is to run, is to cover up, to try to make things look better than they are. Paint a pretty picture Make it look good on the outside. 
like the Pharisees, whitewashed tombs, right? Never dealing with the inside. It's a human response to try to save yourself. But listen to how this worked for him. <laughs> and this is probably one of the things that I, I recognized my story in so well. When I kept silent, when I wouldn't admit to my sin, when I tried to figure it out all on, on my own and then come to God with, with my tidied up neat life, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. God's heavy hand. We don't want to think about that. About God's hand being heavy on us. But sometimes we can't, it seems like we can't wiggle out of that. Because God, we want to figure our way out. We're going to try to get ourselves together. We're going to try to get things right. Once we're right, then we'll come to you, right? I don't want to be under God's heavy hand. It's not a fun place to be. I'm struggling, I'm trying to wiggle my way out of this. Let me get myself right, and then I don't, have to, I don't have to be under condemnation anymore because I won't be practicing sin anymore. And he says, my vitality was turned into the drought of summer. So it seems like David's life could have appeared to be doing well to the outside. Um, he's a king had things together, was winning battles. Seemed like life was going great. But inside he was weak and broken. And where there was once life, he recognized that there, it became a desert. There was all the infrastructure of a, of a successful man, but there was no life inside. And I, I looked and, and, and I wondered, like, I wonder what drought it talks here about the drought of summer. What kind of effect has drought had in human history? And a lot of historians actually look to the, the abandonment of the Mayan society in Mexico. They attribute that largely to drought. There's, there's sources that say there were multiple millions of people that died from starvation and, and from lack of water. And a lot of the reasons you have this amazing infrastructure, if you go down to Mexico or down through Central America, you see this amazing infrastructure, all these temples, all these buildings, all these things, where clearly there was a grand civilization at one time where they really had a lot of things figured out. They had a lot of things going for them. But it died. It wasn't sustainable because there was no water. There was like a three or four hundred year drought, I think, that they dealt with that, I don't know if it was continually that way, but it seemed like there was not sustainable water sources. seemed like it was a thriving culture, but there was no life inside. There was no water. And I think one of the things about hiding from God, from hiding, hiding our sin from God, is that we're trying to get to a place of life without going to the source of life. We look for that life by making ourselves better, by hiding from God, figuring our stuff out, and then coming to God. But really there's no ability to come to God because we don't, God is the source of life. He's the living water, he said. So in hiding from God, we remove ourselves from the very solution to the problem that we're trying to solve. And it always ends up in bankruptcy. And we try to, a lot of times we try to medicate it, right? 
the brokenness in our own hearts, we try to medicate it or distract ourselves from it. We get busy. God, your hand is heavy on me. I don't like this feeling. Let me go ahead and fill up my schedule so full that I don't have time to feel the heaviness of God's hand. Let me, uh, let me, let me try to be successful in different areas of life. Yeah, I may have brokenness in this area of life, but as long as I make up for it by being a good person to other people or maybe figuring out how to be a good dad or how to be a good brother or how to, you know, as long as I'm going to keep this part of my life hidden away because it's uncomfortable and God's hand is heavy on me, but I'm going to try to make up for it by, by working things out on this side. And really what it's doing is it's running from the source of life where God wants to reach into your life and say, let me heal this in you. Let me heal the one thing that you're hiding from me. We're scared. It's hard to trust God with that because it's so vulnerable. It ends up in spiritual bankruptcy. We end up broken. Trying to chase success, trying to chase all the things that should be fulfilling us where we're trying to find fulfillment and we end up bankrupt. It's God's heavy hand. Try to excuse our way out of it, do good works, find a good social group. Maybe excuse it for cheap grace. Oh, God overlooks it. It's fine. Um, You don't really need to dig into it because, you know, God's a forgiving God, which he is. But he wants to take those things that we're trying to hide from him and actually bring healing to where there's brokenness. Listen to how David reaches the, the bottom of the barrel, really. Day and night, his hand, God's hand is heavy upon him. In verse 5, he says, I acknowledged my sin to you. He was done running. And my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. We have to get to that place of brokenness. And I'll just tell you from my life, I don't think we're ready for freedom until we reach that point of desperation. As long as you try to get this self-sufficient thing of let me get it figured out on my own, it's making yourself your own savior. We have to reach that point of desperation for God where we're done trying to figure it out because we know that doesn't work. I mean, it kind of goes with what, Matthew, uh, with what Jesus said in Matthew 5. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. It's not the one, blessed are the ones who got it all figured out. Blessed are those who are broken, who are poor in spirit. Show, come to God with their brokenness. Now listen to the shift in this. This is, oh, this is amazing. So we come to this place of brokenness, the bottom of the barrel, seeing our own need for God. And then we come to God with that need and we admit it to him and say, okay, God, this is the part where I've been trying to prop up. I'm done propping it up because I know that hasn't worked. It's been unfulfilling. It's been unsuccessful and your hand is still heavy on me. 
In verse 6, For this cause everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. And then surely in a flood of great waters they shall not come near him. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with shouts of deliverance. Do you guys see the shift? The God who David was hiding from originally became the hiding place for his soul. Is the one who David was afraid of. He didn't trust God with his brokenness. He's trying to hide his sin. When he confesses his sin to God, God, the very God who had every right to write him off, to, to cast him away because he's a holy and righteous God, that God becomes his hiding place. And the one who's protecting him from the waters that are trying to overwhelm him. Not only protecting him from the waters, he says, you are my hiding place, you shall preserve me from trouble, and you shall surround me with shouts of deliverance. It becomes a joyful thing where God doesn't only want to be okay with seeing your sin, but he wants to deliver you from it. He's a God who saves, pulls you out of that mess. Listen to what happens to the heavy hand, God. In verse 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you shall go. I will guide you with my eye. The heavy hand of God that brought conviction that David was running from the concept, he didn't want to face that. He didn't want to face that, that conviction of the Holy Spirit. When he surrendered to God, the heavy hand of God became a steady hand for him to follow. You see it? I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. See, God wants to be more than just our refuge and more than just our relief. While he is all of that, suddenly David doesn't have to carry the weight of that anymore, of his sin, because he's, he's confessed it to God, and God heals him. But God doesn't just leave him there. God says, okay, come here. Follow me. Let me show you the way you should go. He says, I will guide you with my eye. How does someone guide with their eye? I think what he's talking about there is a relationship with David. Where he says, David, okay, come look at me. You can know me. Let's stay face to face. Let's stay in lockstep. Let's walk through life together. Let me show you how to walk away from this. Does that not sound like the voice of the Holy Spirit? When we've been scared to come to God with our brokenness. We come to him, we surrender. We find that his hand doesn't reject us, but his heavy hand has been upon us, actually pulls us out of the mess that we've been in. And then he invites us, he says, okay, come walk with me. He teaches us how to walk forward. Then he says, do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. In other words, don't be stubborn. Don't go back to your old way. Don't you see that I'm trustworthy? 
you come to me with my brokenness, I'm going to guide you into truth. I'm going to guide you into life. And it actually reminds me of this. You know, as human beings, we were created to serve. The Bible says that we're going to be either a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. It's who we're created to be. See, we're not God. We're not. We try to make ourselves to be, but when we try to make ourselves to be God and try to make our own life decisions and try to forge our way through life, it always ends up in brokenness because we're not cut out for it. Because we end up, if we're not serving God, we end up serving sin. Romans 6. Starting in 16, I'll read 16 and 18 and then 20 to 23. It says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one to whom you obey, either to sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's where he's leading us. He's saying, don't don't go off on your own way anymore. Let me guide you. I'm guiding you to life. It's... Yes it's, yes, it's being submitted and surrendered to God. But you know that he's a good guide? He's not going to lead you into something that is, destroys you like sin will. It's that trust. We have to see God as good. See, we're, we're not in a neutral zone at all. We have an enemy that tries to yell lies at us that God's good, and if you surrender to him, things are going to fall apart. If you come to him with your brokenness, things are going to fall apart. People are going to look at you weird. People thought you were all this, and now you, now you were honest about where you're at, and now people are going to be sketched out and think that everything's a fraud. Maybe. But that's not a point of desperation. I have to get to that place of desperation where we say, okay, I'm done trying to figure it out on my own. I'm going to follow you now. And then he says, the hill camp, he says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. This is the end of the thing. Like we read in Romans 6 where um, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In verse 10, many sorrows shall be to the wicked. But he who trusts in the Lord, get this triumphant ending, mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Why? Because the God that we trusted with our brokenness has led us to deliverance. That's our hope. And in verse 11, the, the, the blessing at the end. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous. The blessing is to a company of people. It's not singular. 
So yes, we see the righteousness of Christ, but he imputes his righteousness to us and makes us righteous, even as he is righteous. As Jesus said, there is none good but God, but there is only one who can in himself receive this blessing, but we through him have, we become, have become recipients of his righteousness. That's the beauty of the gospel. It says, we who were once far off have been now brought near by the blood of Christ. I wonder if we trust him. I wonder if we trust him enough to come to him with the places that we've been ashamed of, where we've been hiding from, and where we've been experiencing that heavy hand of God, where we've been scared to let go of. I wonder if we trust him enough to say, okay, God, I'm going to bring this to you. I'm going to be real with where I'm at. I'm going to trust that you're good. You know, until you take that step of faith, of trusting God in that, you're not going to be able to experience the kind guidance of Christ in your life. You're not going to be able to experience freedom. As long as you're still holding on to your own way, saying, let me figure it out. Let me get this figured out on my own. You won't be able to experience that guidance of the Holy Spirit. And when you do, it's more than enough. There's a song I've been listening to that's spoken to me in this area. It says, the chorus goes, I'll stop all negotiations with the God of all creation because you're bigger than I thought you were. We underestimate God's goodness so much. Try to put trust in our own selves instead of God. But stop your negotiating with him. Stop your fighting him. Not because you're a bad person and need to get your crap together. It's because he's good and he cares about you and he wants to set you free from that which was enslaving you. Man, when I saw that, I saw my own story. Because I've seen the way in my life that when I've come to the end of myself, and it's a process, guys. It's not a one-time thing and then you're done. It's a process of God bringing something to your to your life and you say, okay, I'm surrendering this. And then he'll bring something else and you say, okay, I'm surrendering this. But did you know that that's what it's like to walk with a God who's guiding you with his eye upon you? He'll do it. Isaiah 66, which this could be a whole, whole other sermon. I almost preached on this. Um, in Isaiah 66, God's looking for a place for his rest, to, to rest with his spirit. And they're trying to impress him with a tabernacle made out of temporal things. God's like, I've made all this stuff. The stone, the wood, all these other things, my hands have made. Let me show you what the place that I want to rest. He says, this is the one to whom I will look. For a dwelling place for my spirit. He who is humble, contrite in spirit, and who trembles at my word. So if you want to be the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, there's your prerequisites. Okay, thank you guys.